Okay, I'm going, I'm going to go ahead and start. Um, my name is Indiri Musa, and I'm a pediatric intensive care specialist as well as um, a cardiac intensive care specialist. So I work exclusively in the cardiac ICU. And maybe wondering to yourself, how is that applicable in a low-resource setting or in global health? But I hope by the end of this talk, I will convince you why it is important and how it can be applicable in that context. Um, I'm going to start with a verse of scripture that I, I just wanted to highlight two points which I've highlighted in red. In Matthew 15, 32 to 32, 36, and 37, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. Then he took the seven loaves and fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They ate all and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. I highlighted the word compassion and thanksgiving, or thanks, because um, if you look at the life of Jesus, he always had compassion for the people he encountered. He saw them through the eyes of the Father. And he always gave thanks to God, even for impossible situations. And God multiplied and made it possible, because he was dependent on the Father. And as you go out, you know, if you're, uh, you feel led to go out for missions, you have to have compassion for the people that you're going to encounter. And always give thanks. It shows dependence on God, because he is the one who will get you through the most difficult situations. So we're going to go ahead and talk about intensive care education in low-resource settings. I want to thank the organizers of this um, conference for inviting me. Uh, this is my first time. I've heard about this conference for many, many years, but this is my first time attending. And my objective today is to bring before you the statistics, and then I'm going to talk about emergency uh, triage assessment and treatment. I'm going to define critical care. And then I'm going to actually give you a story from the field. And then lastly, we'll just briefly mention the role of education. This is, this is a slide that, I mean, it's busy, but it just shows you that I just want you to uh, take a look at the caption. How many child deaths can we prevent this year? Evidence-based uh, evidence cost-effective interventions. How many newborns can we save? And I'm glad to note that there are two talks on the Millennium Development Goal in this conference, because it's important. If you look at the global picture, 8 million children less than five years die annually. If you think about it, it's one child dies every three seconds. And over 90% are from low- and middle-income countries. Four million newborns die annually and contribute to 30 to 50% of the under-5 deaths. Most of these deaths are preventable. They are related to infectious disease and malnutrition. And one of the leaders in our field said this after he took a sabbatical and went to uh, low-resource settings to observe the situation. He says, 
I have seen too many children die and too many mothers cry for me to remain silent. It's a very good article if you would like to read it, and I've put the reference there. And Nelson Mandela in 1988 says, There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way it treats its children. So if you look at it, um, we can see from the slide that a greater percentage of these children die from uh, neonates. Uh, 40% of the neonates die uh, from various diseases like uh, birth asphyxia, neonatal diseases. And if you look here, you can see that only 2%, I think, die from, or, um, from HIV. But a lot of money has been spent on, on preventing HIV or treating HIV, which is important. But a lot of the deaths are from things like uh, uh, birth asphyxia, neonatal jaundice, as well as pneumonia. So large, also if you look at the past, large investments have been made in public health uh, and preventive measures. Whilst these are important, um, it is important to note that uh, children are still dying from things like pneumonia. Half of the children brought to the hospital die within the first 24 hours from late presentations and sometimes from illnesses that have a rapid um, onset and are potentially fatal. The first day of uh, mortality is influenced by the care received on arrival. So it's important to get these children early. However, in low-resource settings, we know that there are inadequate emergency services. There is absolutely no pre-hospital ambulances, um, although nowadays you're beginning to see a few um, um, in some of the, the countries that have a lot of money in, in Africa. However, there's still inadequate infrastructure, equipment, staff, and skills. Emergency care is not very well defined. There Really, up until recently, there's no triage system. If you look at the average wait time to be seen uh, to complete a visit was 377 minutes compared to 90 minutes in the U.S. And the outpatient department is usually the area where most of these kids are seen. Uh, they can be standing in line for immunizations, urgent care, and yet some of them may be needing acute care. In the outpatient department, there are no protocols. The lab services are in other buildings, so things are slow. There is no area for resuscitation, nor an area for observation. So, and then, you know, there's also the divided care because they have the accident and emergency where they see the trauma patients, and then outpatient department, they see all other cases. So WHO put together the ETAC program, Emergency Triage and Assessment and Treatment. And I can tell you that this is, even though it's been in existence now for, I, I want to say, five or six years, there are very, very few countries that have adopted this uh, uh, um, protocol. It is a validated triage system. It is simple. Uh, it's sufficiently straightforward to be used by non-clinical staff. does not include trauma but allows for patient flow, which is one of the things that is really hampers the care of the acutely ill child. And it also teaches pattern recognition, which is very important in terms of uh, addressing this, this area.
Um, in 2006, a hospital in uh, Blantyre uh, in Malawi uh, was one of, they reported their data. They're a hospital that had 180 pediatric beds. They see 90,000 patients per year with 12,000 admissions. They had an OPD like many, many of the uh, countries, in, 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 at least in Africa, that I'm aware of. They had an emergency unit and an under-five clinic. Their staff consisted of two to three medical assistants, two to three nurses, one patient attendant, um, a receptionist, and a cleaner. Trauma, as usual, and casualty are seen in the accident and emergency. They reviewed their resources. The training took two weeks. They introduced the new scheme for patient flow for about two to three months, so they spent that much time. And they had their senior experienced staff uh, pediatricians there so that they could help uh, to manage this. The ETAT was taught over several afternoons in a modular format. And then they applied for grant funding because it did actually cost some money. This is a busy slide, but the point is that they went from no triage to being able to triage patients into immediate care, priority care, and non-urgent care. So people were not standing in line waiting for their turn, but they were able to um, triage these patients. So they identified an area uh, for the immediate care. They had a, an area that they identified for resuscitation. And then they went through step-by-step uh, step, uh, through the training that they had uh, um, um, instituted. And I'll show you their data, and we'll talk about the training in a few minutes. Uh, so you can see that once they started triage, they were able to re reduce their in-hospital mortality significantly. And they were able to sort of triage patients appropriately and improve hospital care. So this is just a, a schema of what it looked like. You have emergency care, and they used, obviously, like we use in the U.S., the letters of the alphabet. It's easy to remember. A for airway, B for breathing, C for circulation, and D was for diarrheal diseases. So you teach them how to recognize the patients who need attention right away. And then you triage them into the emergency care. And then they had... Also, uh, um, symptomatology, so that you could triage those who needed to go into priority care. And then those who were non-urgent could stay, uh, stay in a queue and wait for their turn. So some of the emergency signs, as I mentioned, was airway and breathing. You looked for obstructive breathing. You looked for central cyanosis. You looked for kids who had severe respiratory distress, who had uh, what some um, areas called rapid indrawing. So you look at and see their chest is moving rapidly or weak and absent breathing. Then for circulation, you looked at their hands to see if they were cold. Uh, you looked for the capillary refill time. So you just press the skin to see whether the blood comes back very fast or very slow. You feel for a pulse, whether the pulse was fast or rapid. And then, of course, you look, you, it's easy to tell if a patient is comatose just by looking at them or if they had diarrheal diseases with sunken eyes. And so there was sort of a, a, a strategy that they, they, were, they taught them, they walked them through this so that they could identify these kids very early 
and triage them appropriately. And so the next category was P2. These were the priority signs. And it was three T's, three P's, and three R's, and an M would be. So if the infant was less than two months, if they had a temperature greater than 39.5, if they were, had a major, if they were a trauma victim, they were um, triaged. Usually the trauma patients were seen in the accident and emergency. Then you looked for pain, of the mother reports poisoning, or if you look, you know, you pressed their hands and you saw some pallor. In other words, the blood supply didn't return as fast. These were the P's. And then if they were restless and irritable, if they had respiratory distress, or um, if they had a referral letter. And then, of course, MOB was malnutrition, edema, and severe burns. So this is what you want to do. You want to look at this picture just by looking at the patient. You want to tell who needs the attention rapidly. So if you look at these two, two patients, it's not difficult to tell that the patient A requires attention immediately and maybe patient B can wait. So why do we need training? Why do we need to teach people to recognize uh, kids who are sick. Because there's a golden hour. If you think about shock, there is a golden hour. A patient who is in shock, you, uh, in what we call compensated shock, you can, if you recognize them early and you resuscitate early, you could save their lives before they get into uh, full cardiac arrest and then you can't do anything about it. So there is a continuum, if you think about it, uh, leading to critical care. You go from the home, I mean, teaching the parents to recognize that they need to bring the child in because of certain symptoms. Then you go to your district hospital or your district clinic, the district hospital, and then finally to a tertiary care. So now I'm going to address what critical care is. Critical care is simply health care for the very sick patient. So all hospitals have critical, critically ill patients. And if you think about it, it is not defined by the expensive technology. According to this uh, report in the New England Journal of Medicine, treatment of life-threatening illnesses does not start in a specialized unit, but rather requires early detection, prompt intervention, before the patient is transferred to an area with close monitoring. Recognition of early clinical syndromes combined with an awareness that critical illness need not lead inevitably to fatal deterioration. So it's important to teach them to recognize early signs and symptoms of shock, to intervene early, and we can actually prevent death. Now, I'm not talking about the bells and whistles, or ventilators, of uh, you know, um, expensive uh, things. I'm just talking about early recognition of a patient who needs just fluids. That's simple, that's inexpensive, and that's part of critical care. However, there's a misconception that it's too expensive, it diverts scarce resources for a few, and it doesn't improve, uh, significantly improve mortality. But if you think about it, 
the kids who die in low resource settings do not have comorbidities, except sometimes they do have malnutrition, but not to the degree that we see in the United States. So that you can prevent, if they have a pneumonia, you can give them oxygen and you can improve their, their symptomatology in an efficient way. So, the old adage that, you know, we should focus just on prevention and public health is important. But that does not prevent children from getting critically ill, who need oxygen, who need resuscitation. And critical care actually does reduce mortality. However, there are challenges, especially in low-resource settings because you have a lack of skilled doctors and nurses, so training is important. Resources and equipment are exp may be expensive, and also the financing. There are benefits, uh, because the, the quality of care, wherever there's critical care, the quality of care obtained is usually, uh, can usually impact lives. There's also a ripple effect, because you have high standards of ICU with education and training opportunities, that can help disseminate knowledge and improve care for children overall. There's also the greater vigilance to critical illness that provides early essential care that improves overall morbidity and mortality. What can be done? How can we establish this type of care? It requires uh, emergency care. It requires training of physicians and nurses in early recognition and resuscitation. And it also requires team building. That's why the WHO instituted the IMCI, which is for uh, outpatient departments, and as well as the ETAT for um, um, hospital-based pro um, uh, hospital protocol. In fact, the institution of, um, of uh, ETAT helped improve the mortality in a study that was recently done um, in Kenya, uh, not just Kenya, sorry, uh, Uganda, in four countries, Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya. And they did a, 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 a wonderful randomized control trial that has never been done in Africa. It was a very good trial, and the actual mortality was lower than the predicted mortality because they had instituted ETAT, they had trained uh, uh, the people who were involved, uh, in, in ETAT, as well as um, the, the adherence to the protocol, the strict adherence to the protocol. I'm going to move on. I'm going to actually talk about an actual example. So I gave you the example from Blantyre. Now I'm going to give you an example uh, from uh, Kenya. Kenya. And I got this. I was recently in Kenya um, looking at exploring opportunities to start a, uh, a pediatric emergency medicine slash critical care training program. And I came across this physician who's a Christian. And she, she's at Kijabi, and she allowed me to use her slides to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. So they looked at their data from 2011 to 2012, lesson one there were unnecessary delays. Now, this is 2011-2012. There was no triage system that they had at the time. The wait time, uh, so they took data on children coming to the maternal and 
child health clinic with, for two weeks. They looked at the arrival times. They looked at the time they received their file and registered. They looked at the times the vitals were done, the time the doctor was act- saw the patient, as well as the age, the weight, and the vital signs. Looking closer, the priority one, so if you, if you classified priority one, which were the emergent children who should be seen emergently, out of all the children that came, there were three children that were sent directly to the casualty for vitals. On that priority two, there was one child who um, was later triaged to be a casualty. Uh, there was another child that the triage nurse found the doctor for immediate assessment. And then there were 22 children whose charts were put on a first-come, first-served basis who needed to actually be uh, uh, categorized as priority one because they had tachycardia, they had an oxygen saturation that was, tachycardia means a higher heart rate, and uh, a saturation that was less than 90. They had severe wasting and one of them was sick and under the age of two months. So they instituted changes. So this, this, uh, this little study for two weeks helped inform them as to what they needed to do uh, to make things better. So now they had a triage uh, system. So priority one, if you, uh, if you came in, instead of going and standing in line and waiting to be seen by the nurse or going for your file and paying your money, they um, um, put a triage system in place, just like the one they put in, in Malawi. And then they had a uh, resuscitation pager that was carried for all the, PL, the P, uh, priority one patients, so that if there was a priority one patient, the patient was seen immediately. Then the priority two, they had a separate box that they put all these patients' in, uh, files into so that they could be seen. And then, of course, priority three uh, were seen on a first-come, first-served basis. The second lesson they learned is that there was no pediatric resuscitation training. So they, they looked at it, they, you know, they did everything by eyeball, you know, this patient must weigh 10 kilos. And you know that sometimes what we see is not really what, what is actual, the actual weight. So there was no length-based weight estimates. The parents were asked to approximate their weight. There were no scales uh, that were there, and so uh, they reinstituted training. Their resuscitation box looked like that, all sort of not well... Um, characterized. So the other lesson they learned is that they were spending a lot of time trying to get IV access when actually one of the things that we use in PALS is you just stick an IO needle within a few minutes if you cannot get an IV. So um, they, they didn't have IO um, uh, needles around, so children had to be sent to the operating room for IV access if it failed in the emergency department. And then they had no pediatric resuscitation protocols, so they were adapting adult uh, protocols for pediatrics, and we know that uh, two different things. And a a child is not a little adult. (laughs) And there was no regular training for nursing or the uh, uh, staff in resuscitation. Uh, So the changes they instituted was they got a Braslow tape for length-based weight, some people would argue that the Braslow tape is for American children and may not be applicable to, to African children, but nonetheless, they instituted something that could be used. They also 
brought in IO needles and they taught the skills on how to use IO needles. They changed, uh, they restructured the crash cuts so that it was weight based. Um, they had neonatal bag masks, val bag mask uh, valves uh, uh, moved into just the nursery. And then one thing they did, which is so important, was that they did month, uh, weekly mock codes with pediatric protocols for the ED staff, the pediatric ward staff, and the nursery staff. Now, for some of you who are not in, uh, I was going to take a show of hands of how many people are in medicine, just so that you understand. But mock, what mock codes are is just, you, it's like simulation. So you, you, you do a simulation so that you get people used to learning how to early recognition, how to, what are the important things that they should institute first, airway, breathing, circulation, airway, breathing, circulation. So those are the pretend codes so that they don't have to, uh, they can uh, be at ease when they are faced with an actual code. And they did mentoring and encouragement of the nursing staff and physicians. Now, if you met for the people who have gone abroad, you know that there's such a wide gap between the physician and the nurses. And there isn't that team-based approach to uh, taking care of its critically ill children. And what happened? They reduced mortality, and the nurses initiated resuscitation before the doctor arrived, as well as it was a team-based approach. And I just want to read you an email that she sent me just before uh, uh, I, I came to give this, just to give, uh, show you the point. It says, I have to tell you, just this week, one of my senior pediatric nurses came up to me and said, we have a new nurse on the ward. She was so surprised. Sorry. <laughs> She was so surprised when we told her that in a resuscitation, we start the resuscitation before we call the doctor. It is our job to start assessing ABCs, to look for signs of shock and think about a fluid bolus. It made my day. In July to September, the PEDS audit we have had no unexpected death on the ward. None. There were deaths in the ICU and some palliative deaths, but no unexpected death in the world. So it's important to train, to teach, in um, um, low-resource settings, to early recognition, early resuscitation does actually save the life. And in conclusion, um, Critical care education is essential in low-resource settings. Early recognition and timely resuscitation saves lives. And it's important because missionaries who have trained in developed nations can actually make an impact in low-resource settings because as part of your training, whether you're a nurse or a physician, you are involved in resuscitation protocols. You have to, that's part of your training in, 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 in the U.S., in caring for critically ill children. So education does not always require high-tech resources. Just simply teaching people 
what they should look for and what they should do actually does uh, uh, save lives. And um, with that, I would ask if anyone has questions, and then I, I, I can. I know I finished very early. <laughs> but does anyone have any questions or any comments? Eat that. Eat was being filled up at Central Hospital in the long way. They were also instituting that. And the vast difference it made in the holding area where everybody just waits. Uh, I was overseeing a rural mobile clinic, so we were referring patients to Central Hospital. You know, I, I didn't have to worry about physically walking someone to a provider and saying, you have to see this patient and kind of, you know, using my authoritative position to get something done because the system actually worked. You know, you saw people being identified very early. Um, the physicians that were working there, clinical officers, medical assistants, um, it really brought the team together, um, which if any of you have worked in those kind of settings, I mean, as providers, we all have to do orientation for licensure at these hospitals. Um, you notice there's not the teamwork cohesiveness like we have here uh, where, you know, you're kind of working for the benefit of the patient. A lot of, you know, nurses do their job, doctors do their job. Um, this was really amazing to see kind of that all come together. Good. So we have a testimony of someone who actually saw it. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you, I've, you know, as an African, and I see Dr. Van Rieken here, I, and I used to hear him say that many children are not going to live to reach their, what is it, five, one out of five of uh, Liberian children will never make it to their fifth birthday. That was how many years ago? 30 years ago. And we're still talking about the Millennium Development Goals now. I think that, you know, it is just so, because again, we spent a lot of time, and I'm not saying that there's not, preventive health is not important, but we did not address the need in the hospital with education. I mean, that was just education. It didn't, they're not using ventilators like we use in the U.S. So if you think about critical care, it's not all about ventilators. It is important. Education is so important. And I think that's where I want to make a plea to missionaries. You've been involved in the U.S. of resuscitation. These are things you can simply teach and change the orientation, change team building, teamwork. The doctor and the nurse are, are, should work together to improve the care of the child. Everybody should take ownership of that patient. And it does improve care. And Hopefully, I'm hoping that many more mission hospitals will institute ETAT because ETAT has been out now for, I don't know, I think five or six years and it's still not being implemented in many of the hospitals. So mission hospitals can take the lead, missionaries can take the lead and demonstrate that care can be improved in a, uh, for these uh, children. Any more questions, comments? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she 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 mentioned that that in uh, in um, in uh, what is it in 
in Kenya or in Kijabi at that point that, you know, you have the, the father decides what's going to happen. So it's something like that. I mean, it's really actually, I don't even know why that was there, but when you think about it, because it's, it has nothing to do with, uh, with the eye or needle. It's just that that's the society that they live in, but nothing to do with the eye or needle. Yeah. I just say, one, having, I lived at Kijabi for 34 years, but uh, one of the things I think a lot of what they're teaching again is what's been taught in the past. I think you have to keep on, as you were implying, teaching it and teaching it and teaching it. Because, and then the, we did have special charts for using for children for resuscitation time. Yeah. Any more questions, comments? Yeah. Is there any major resistance to institution and things like these protocols? I think, again, you know, again, it's if what was inherited. I mean, if you go back and see that these hospitals, I mean, think about oxygen. Oxygen is so basic, yet it's missing from a lot of these hospitals. So, I mean, how do you get you, I mean, you have to sort of uh, buy in from the top, you know. And, and yes, you know, those hospitals were built many, many, many years ago. And at that time, maybe oxygen was not, you know, I, I didn't live in Florence Nightingale time. But if you think about it, it's still, it's still those, that's this infrastructure that they still have. So that now we have to use uh, oxygen concentrators and there's no oxygen wired through the, uh, um, system so kids are dying because they don't have oxygen or if they have oxygen they have to share it with so many different things so those are basic things that need to change and sometimes policy needs to change but I think that you know just just what Mahdi did in uh, at Kijabe is, 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 is laudable because she went there she saw a problem she took some data to at least get buying from everybody, and then started working at it by training and teaching and training and teaching mock codes, resuscitation, on, over and over again, and has made an impact now as a result of that. It didn't require extra money. So uh, the issue is, you know, leadership and uh, hierarchy or bureaucracy. Yeah, it's so important, you know, you, you really, that 
just work in that system. I was, again, in Kenya at the same time. We were doing a resuscitation course, and they had the box of the uh, helping babies breathe, but it was, it hadn't been used. So what's the point of having this resuscitation box that you're not, with everything still new in the packaging, and it's not been used? So it's, it's important to, <laughs> you know, encourage them to actually do more codes. You know, it makes us familiar so that we're not, when we actually have a kid to resuscitate, we know what to do. We can sink on our feet. So, but the only way you could do it is by practice, 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 practice over and over and over again. Simulation. I mean, that's where the simulation story is, is that if you practice and practice, when you're in the situation, you have a familiarity and you can actually do it. And it can be applicable to, you don't have to have high fidelity um, um, uh, mannequins to do resuscitation in low research settings. You can use the simple, we put water in the baby, it helps you know how to bag the baby so that if you don't bag, the chest doesn't rise, so you know you're not doing a good job. The, you know, so s- simple low fidelity things can be used uh, for, for resuscitation in low resource settings. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to one of the nurses where they do they did the pre triage and she said the first time they tried it People were complaining, I've been here in line for a long period of time. But then when, she, when they realized that this was a sick kid who needed more attention, because, I mean, that was, the, that was the complaint of this guy who took a sabbatical. He saw the kid die in line, waiting to get to the top, because they were waiting their turn, because they had no triage system. So then, you know, they explained to them, look, if, if your child is very, very sick, they need to be seen right away. And so once they, you know, started doing that, people started relaxing that, you know, this is okay. But yes, they had issues with that, that they had been there maybe 6 o'clock in the morning, standing in line to be first seen, rather than have the triage-based system. But I think with time, I mean, you can speak to that, that with time, uh, it's, it's, it's going to become the culture. They're not quite there yet, but they're moving in that. I think United Nations has to come up with another Millennium Development Goal before it happens. <laughs> I saw a hand back there. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping they'll get there. They're now on, uh, what is it, prevention of road accidents. So <laughs> I think United Nations may, may be more power to them in a sense. But we can pray. We are Christians. We can actually pray and ask God to help us help them in, initiate these things. But yes, I think they're talking about ambulances, um, you know, and things like that to start uh, pre-hospital uh, resuscitation, but they're not quite there yet. I mean, there was one, I mean, I was in Senegal once, and there was a kid who seized, and they had an ambulance come pick the kid up. And I was shocked, you know, but 
some places are advanced and some places are not quite there yet. Are these protocols being taught in nursing schools? Or are they more um, I wish I could say I knew the answer, but I don't. <laughs> but I wish, I wish they could be taught, you know, um, because it's important uh, um, to, teach, uh, to teach them to nurses and physicians and in medical school. And I know East Africa actually has done a lot more with ETAT, even though it's supposed to be a WHO protocol. And it's only now slowly getting to West Africa, but East Africa has done quite a bit. And it's, it's, it's evident because, uh, you know, we were doing a resuscitation simulation there, and they knew what to do, whereas when I was in, in another country in West Africa, it took me, I had to keep prompting them to really think ABC, ABC. Yeah, you know, it should come naturally. So it, these protocols do work, and they improve care. All right. Any more questions, comments? These have been good questions and comments. Oh, okay. Two people. Um, okay. Okay, so this is maybe an ignorant question, but how are, are there mnemonics, like, I mean, in English it's ABC, but are there mnemonics in other languages to help training? And, like, how, how does that work? Boy, you stumped me. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I, I don't know because most of the places I've been to, I've, apart from Senegal, is uh, the English-speaking colonies. So the ABC is, they're familiar with the alphabet. Uh, but I would imagine that, you know, in uh, French-speaking countries or in Asia, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what they do, but the letters of the alphabet are sort of, you know, universal. Everybody knows A, well, I think, at least educated people know A, B, C, D. So, those are, yeah. Uh, it's kind of a technical question, mm -hmm. and I need to talk to somebody afterwards if they may answer. Mm -hmm. um, what about for patients who don't have an IO access kit or whatever, um, and you don't have great veins? Um, does anybody have experience with hypodermocolysis in pediatric patients? No. An IO should be simple. You can actually use an 18-gauge needle to do an IO. So you don't really need what, you know, we have the technical drill, but before the drill there was the IO needle. But you can use like an 18-gauge needle. Some people say you can actually use a, either a bone marrow needle or even an, a spinal needle, which, you know, you can get into the bone and resuscitate using those. All right. I had that philosophical question with a midwife because for the very fact that if you go to the delivery room, there's only somebody focusing on the mother and not the baby. And their birth asphyxia rate is so high. And I was trying to understand why, is, why, is the, why don't they assign someone to the baby? And I think it's because they have come to, I mean, that's why, I mean, they have a lot of kids too, 
I mean, and she said that to me, and I am sort of, as an African, I'm ashamed to even say that, but that is the truth, that they focus on the mother because the mother can have another one, if that one dies. But I want us to begin to think about, they're the next, they're the future of the next generation. So we need to start to begin to think about the babies. And there's a proverb that says, children must be seen and not heard. And I think it pervades the whole society such that, you know, they don't really pay attention to it. And so that's why it took 30 years for United Nations to come up and say, we need to reduce the under-5 mortality by X percentage before they started to do something. So I think it is sort of ingrained. I'm not sure, I, don't, I, wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say that they, they are unhappy to see their child die. Yes, it's a loss. But, you know, again, when you don't know any better and you don't have the resources, it's hard to do better. And that's why these protocols are helpful because the more we begin to institute them, the more these kids uh, survive. They can see that they can survive and become somebody or, or at least, you know, be educated and improve care. So I, I, I think it's coupled with the fact that ignorance, um, poverty, and just not having the resources has led to that situation. But hopefully, I, I hope another 30 years we will not be saying the same thing. Medical clinics are medical um, trips, um, or uh, health fairs, if you want to call it, um, like we did in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they, they, it was the same thing. The value went on the mothers, but then when um, you give them a birthing bed and then you also have, you have another bed next to it for the child, so they have somewhere to put the child, and if you got some help, then encourage them because, like, Sierra Leone is over 26% death rate, highest death rate in the world, and for up to zero to five. So anyway, that's... But it's amazing when you start working with the, the staff or the, the nurses in the, in the bush that they, they really start seeing the change. There were actually no deaths last year in Kenamala Boy after we were there for two mission trips. So it, it does work. Yeah. I mean, that's why the American Academy of Pediatrics put together the Helping Babies Breathe, for those of you who, I mean, it's, which is the golden minute. So you need to resuscitate that baby within that minute. And this is how you resuscitate the baby. So hopefully with training, with these protocols, with these things, five years from now, it will be a different... I'm hopeful that five years from now it will be a different story. And if we encourage the, the pregnant mothers to go to the clinic and not just wait till it's too late, yeah. that's another thing. I yeah. yeah. I mean, they have so many different things like... Um, uh, they call them clean birth kits, which I'd never heard of. I just heard of it recently, where they, you know, they give the mother a, uh, a clean razor blade, a clean pair of gloves, so that, you know, again, to reduce infection rate amongst the babies. Bangladesh did a, a beautiful study in Bangladesh where they sent community, evan- uh, what is it, Shea Walker, to go and visit the, the mother when the baby, just before she delivered the baby, they went in the first day after the baby was born. They looked at the cord, you know, the things that will trigger, that are trigger points for infection. 
in order to try to reduce uh, neonatal deaths. So if the baby had three days of life, they'll go and gain and visit. If the baby looked sick, had any of these symptoms, they tried to encourage the mother to take the baby to the hospital. If she refused, they gave the baby uh, um, antibiotics. And they did a beautiful study. I mean, it's in, it was, um, I can't remember what journal it was reported in. And they were able to reduce their infant mortality rates by a significant, I think by 26%, just by sending uh, community health workers to visit these mothers. So training, education does work. All right, there are no more questions. Thank you very much.